The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I, I didn't realize because we, anyway, we're here and we're excited that we're here. Welcome to Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy on Autism Live. And today we're just going to jump right in. By the way, I'm Shannon Penrod and my other half, Nancy Allspaw Jackson, has been taking some time off. And I think that she'll be joining us back again in the new year, which we will look forward to. But uh, we've got a big show, a show so full of things that we just have to jump in right now. We have a wonderful guest joining us via Skype. Uh, Leah Hirschfeld is joining us, and she is going to tell us um, about research because she's coming to us from the research arm of the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. And Leah, let's start with that. Tell us a little bit about um, that group um, of people that you do research with. Absolutely. Uh, first off, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's always a highlight for me. Um, for us so, as well, by the way. <laughs> um, so like Shannon was saying, I'm a research coordinator on our research and development team here at CARD. Um, and it actually segues nicely into the research I'll be talking about because I'm going to plug our own research on this episode. Um, and so the research team, we look at answering some questions that will come through our supervisors, and then we also try to run studies that we think will be helpful to the families that we um, serve and then also for insurance providers and things like that. So my day consists of answering questions that pop up, like, um, can you give me some recommendations for feeding strategies that a supervisor might ask? They might want, want some empirical research on that. Um, or, uh, and or also coordinating some of the research that we do. Um, so looking at some studies on the best way to teach a certain skill set. Um, and then we'll kind of run that study so that we can then publish it and be like, hey, this is what we found and this is super exciting. Um, so the second thing is what I'm going to talk about today. We're going to talk about um, a research study that our team just published like five days ago. So it's super, super fresh. Um, and it's very cool. Um, again, it's our research. So I'll, t I'll tell you I'm biased, but I think it's pretty neat. Okay. Um, and hopefully you guys will too. Um, so our team just published a study on virtual reality and using virtual reality to teach safety skills to kiddos with autism. Um, before I plug that, uh, I will say that it's open access, and this is pretty neat. So open access means that anyone has full access to the article. That sounds like something that should just be a no-brainer, but it's unfortunately not. In the research community, getting access to an article can be very expensive. Um, a lot of the times you'll find something you're like, oh, I can't wait to read, read this, and it costs $30 or $40 just for the darn article. Um, God forbid you want a subscription to the journal. Um, so unless you're kind of in the research field with an institution that provides access to it, it can be really expensive. 
So it's very, very cool this is open access. That means that if you Google virtual reality and center for autism related disorders or virtual reality and Dennis Dixon, who's um, the primary author on it and also the head of the research team, um, this should pop up and you should be able to read the entire thing front to back and it's pretty cool. Um, so what the team did was they took three participants and they gave them the Oculus Rift, which is this giant head covering with virtual reality at the eyes and um, some headphones, so you're really in the different reality. Um, and they taught them how to cross the street. This is very, very cool because crossing the street is something both that's um, in the back of everyone's mind and also poses some serious danger, right? If you don't know how to cross the street, you don't know to look left and right, that's not a game that can really have like life consequences. Um, so it's a super important safety skill for kiddos to learn. Um, and virtual reality is potentially a very interesting way to do that because we don't have to put them necessarily immediately in the natural environment to get them to kind of understand what that looks like. Um, and it's much nicer than showing them a picture and being like, this is a street. Look, there's a car. Now, like, right, that's, that's not really what the world looks like when you try to cross the street. So the virtual reality is a really nice way to potentially map that onto what you're actually going to see in the world. Um, so the article is very, very cool because it kind of gives, it gives a very nice story about the research. So the first way that the researchers were doing it was they were taking these short clips that didn't have any distractors, and then they were teaching the kids to look left and right. They were asking if a car was coming and if it was safe to cross. And then when, and kids were doing great. The three kids were doing great on, in VR on that, no problem. But then when they took them to the natural environment, they weren't doing as well as they expected. So the researchers thought through this, and they were like, man, our VR system of very clean, no distractors, very easy, very short, um, isn't what the real world looks like, right? When you're trying to cross the street, there's honks and kids and dogs and construction noise. <laughs> it's never that quiet and delightful. Um, so what the researchers then did was they added in those distractor noises, and they also made it so that the sessions were longer. So what they were concerned about was that the shorter videos were actually priming the kids to pay attention by being like, hey, look, we're going to ask you about a car. And by having a longer um, video, they could more easily simulate, you know, kind of a spontaneous let's cross the street activity. Um, and once they added both those things in, then they saw that the VR system was really actually impacting it so that the natural environment, they, all the kids were doing great in the natural environment at 100%. Um, so very, very cool. I love that the research study is, you can really see like how you have to change in the research um, story, which is not something you necessarily always get to see in an article. Um, the participant information is very, very detailed, which is also great because it really tells you what the kiddos, the skill set the kiddos needed before they could learn in the VR environment. I think this is great for clinici clinicians and parents um, because a lot of the times you'll see a research study and you'll be like, my kid should totally be able to do that. But they might not actually have the skill set, and it might not say that in the participants' eligibility requirements. So this is really nice that this does very much lay out everything the kiddos needed to have in order to be able to learn how to cross the street in VR. Um, I say this every time. Um, every research study, at the very end, if you scroll all the way to the bottom, 
there's a section called discussion. In the discussion section, that's going to go through what the results mean. Um, it's going to go through kind of how this pertains to advancing science. And then there should also be a portion that talks about limitations. And the limitations is really interesting to read. Um, every research article should do it, and it's usually the researcher saying, you know, this was a great study, but, and the but is super great to read, right? So this was a great study, but they only looked at three kiddos. They only looked at how to cross the street. Um, so that was, it's really nice to look at that and kind of understand, oh, this research study looks really, really great, and it, it is, um, but no one's perfect, no research study is perfect, everything has room for improvement, so... Um, the limitation is really important. You always have to scroll at the very end of the article, and it's going to be in a section called discussion. Okay. Um, and then one last very cool thing about this study. Again, very I, uh, it's our research, but it was very, very cool. Um, one of the really nice strengths about this research is that it was done with much younger children than you might usually see with VR. So the kiddos were, the youngest kiddo was four, and a lot of the VR studies usually with eight-year-olds, um, and that's in part because it's really, you have to have like a very serious headgear. Um, can be hard to get parents to agree to let their four-year-old use VR, understandably. Um, so very cool that this was done with younger participants. Um, and very nice study, again, it's open access. So it's very cool to see kind of where VR is and how that can help our kiddos. Um, and there's a lot of really nice things in this study about how the ups and downs of research and how you change things, um, and it's very, very cool to see kind of where the future of this technology might go, and, and very beneficial for very real-life scenarios. Um, I'm going to check on my time real quick. I had one other quick thing I wanted to chat about, but I'm not sure if I have time. Shannon? You have time, yes. You absolutely cool. can. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so the other very cool thing I wanted to talk about, mm, very cool is the wrong word, um, but interesting thing that just came out, again, about a week ago, was about the supply of ABA, or uh, supply of behavior analysis in the United States. Um, and let me pull up my notes real quick. Sorry, I'm off camera. There we go. Mm -hmm. um, so this study actually had no research participants. It was just a giant data analysis. Um, just came out about a week ago. The data was from March 2018 to July 2019, so very, very recent. Um, and what they looked at was the supply of ABA analysts, uh, the su supply of board-certified behavior analysts, and how many individuals have autism, and if there was a sufficient amount of providers. Um, so to start that off, they looked at the board who certify um, behavior analysts and their guidelines for how many kiddos each behavior analyst should have. Um, and so if the behavior analyst doesn't have any assistance, any help, then they should have about 12 to 15 kids on their caseload. And if, and this is all like what the board guidelines are, um, if they do have assistance, you can, you can up the number of kiddos because there's another person helping you, and you can make that about 16 to 24 kiddos. So still pretty small numbers. Um, but super interesting. And so, again, with this giant data dive, the researchers looked to see if there were a sufficient number of analysts. And they found that there was not a sufficient number of analysts in 49 states and Washington, D.C. The only state that had sufficient number of analysts to cover the kiddos diagnosed with autism in that state was Massachusetts, which is kind of wild. Um, 
And then just to like kind of really push the point home that there are just not sufficient number of people in this field, the researchers doubled those numbers. So the board said 12 to 15 kiddos if you don't have any help. So they doubled those numbers, 24 to 30. Um, and then the if you do have help with 16 to 24 kids, the researchers doubled that as well, right? So 32 to 48. Um, and then they, again, took a look to see if there's going to be sufficient providers in the states, and they found still that there were not sufficient providers in 42 states and Washington, D.C., which is, again, insane, because they doubled the number that was allowed, which is a huge amount of kids, and there still were not enough um, analysts in the states to really provide the care that's needed. Um, so very interesting study. Uh, again, all data-driven, just very clear that there's just not enough people in this field. Um, and it kind of gives you, at least gave me a perspective on how hard the people who are in the field have to be working to kind of cover that deficit. Um, and again, like I said, this study also had a portion on discussion and their limitations. So always read the limitations. It was super interesting. It was, to me, when I first looked at it, I was like, oh, there can't be limitations. There's just, it's just data, right? Like this seems very clear cut. But the researchers were talking about um, how there might be non-board certified providers who like special education evaluators who are totally appropriate to do the job that they do, but that they don't have any data on them necessarily. Um, so super, super interesting, very cool stuff coming out this month. Um, if you get a chance and are, are interested, like I said, that VR study is open access. So put in virtual reality, Dennis Dixon, virtual reality, Center for Autism Related Disorders. This, this should come up and you should be able to read the entire article. Um, the other article, the supply of certified ABA in the United States, is going to be a lot trickier to find, unfortunately. It's not open access. You're going to run into that same problem. It's going to cost you $30 to read four pages. Um, but it's super interesting to kind of get a sense of like just how underserved um, the community is and that we just need a lot more people in this field doing cool research and good work. Um, so very, very cool stuff coming up this month. Leah, it's always such a pleasure to have you come and be with us. And because I, no, I, I had no idea that either one of those studies had come out. And I feel like I try to keep my nose to the... <laughs> You know, to the groundstone and, and be like, what's happening here? And the one that I've been uh, listening to the VR um, as they've been working on the study, and I didn't know that, th that you guys had published. So congratulations. Thank you so much. And congrats to the team. They, they did a great job. It was a long road. Um, and you can really see that in the, in the study with having to do reiterations. Um, but it's very cool, and I love that they made it open access. So um, congrats to the whole research team and to all CARD, honestly, for getting that out so very very cool we appreciate it. and you're going to come back and join us again in january correct uh it'll be either me or karen nolte who's a research manager so you're you're upping your game if you get her um <laughs> you're both delightful. great don't sh don't sell yourself short <laughs> um i don't but our research team is really really top notch um, yeah you so, guys are uh, so yeah, it'll either be me or Karen. You'll get one of us in january and we we love coming on the show it's such a pleasure um to just kind of this time totally just plug our own work, but also just generally um, spread the word about the research being done and everything like that, because it's pretty cool um, and can be pretty dense and not the easiest to get to. So very, very, cool. very cool stuff. Thank you so much and happy holidays to you and your family. 
Thank you. You guys too. Have okay, a great one. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I geek out on that. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back with Vince Redman, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist, so stick with us. Welcome back. We are back and so happy to be here with Vince Redmond, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He is also the director of family services at CARD and somebody that I think is really remarkable. Um, one of the thing, one of the many things that I love about Vince is that he gets it. I, I, you know, and that, like, I know those of you who get it understand what it means when somebody gets it. But uh, you can go to a lot of licensed marriage and family therapists and they don't really understand what's at stake when you're doing an intervention and, and what's required of you and why it's worthwhile and why you need help working through that. But Vince does. Vince gets it. So we're so thrilled and excited to wel welcome back Vince Redmond. And I say Redmond, but I hear you saying Redmond. And I... It's yes? spelled Redmond, but... Okay. For the, my entire life, I've said Redmond. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to phonetically, well, you know, sound it out. Okay. So I should be saying Redmond. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we're thrilled that he's here, and uh, welcome back to the show, Vince. I feel like we Hi. haven't seen you in a long time. I think with like Thanksgiving, things got all wonkinator. But yes, thrilled to have you here. And what I'd like to talk about today, if it's okay with you, is about. Sure what the role of a parent is when you're doing an ABA inter intervention, what the expectations are, and what some of the things are that a parent can do that actually impede progress. Because I think if parents don't know, um, I'm going to hold my hand up and go, there are things that I did that impeded progress because I didn't understand that I was impeding the progress. So I'm hoping that maybe today we can make that clear for some folks and then they'll be like, oh, okay, so I shouldn't do this, but I can do that. Okay, let's do that then. You know, I always think that right. knowledge is power, right? And, and, and along that same line, it's communication is power too, right? Yeah. So one of the biggest, I think, uh, I don't uh, errors, I don't know if that's the right word, but one of the things that I see that quite often happens, especially in the beginning of an ABA treatment plan, is the parents are very reluctant to ask questions. Mm. They're very reluctant to, you know, maybe have a disagreement about something, maybe, you know, say... I don't really feel comfortable with that, and this is the reason why. And so then this way it opens up a good dialogue with your supervisor where you're able to discuss not only what the supervisor's thinking is appropriate for your child and the clinical reasons why, but also maybe some of the anxiety that you might feel with this particular intervention, maybe a particular goal, and it's an opportunity to share you know, parental expectations, parental goals, you know, and maybe parental levels of service. Because one of the other things that comes up is in, effect, in an effective treatment model, the parent participation is absolutely e essential. Not only just the education part, but the application of the same interventions, the same behavior intervention plans, and so forth. So early on, there's a lot of expectation that go, that's being put onto card from the families, but also also from card to the families and that can get really confusing if we're not able to communicate that effectively absolutely and I you know with as with everything there's a line right and, I, and you can be on this side of the line or you can be on that side of the line right and and I love that you were saying you know we it's okay to say I you know I'm concerned about this 
Uh, and, and I can think of times when we were going through this where they would say, here's the intervention that we would like to do. And in my head, I would go, well, that's not going to be possible. But I felt squeamish about saying it to them because I thought that they would think that I was saying no or that I wasn't a good parent, that I wasn't willing to do what I needed to do for my son. And, and so I'd be like, oh, I don't want, so I would say nothing and then not, just not follow through on it because in my head I'd be like, that's just not going to be, that's not realistic for my life. Um, right. And then there were other times when I know me where they would say something and then I got a little bit more confident and I would go, no, that's not going to work. And I would just right. say no. And I would make the case, and I'd love to hear from you, Vince, but I would make the case that in both instances, I was impeding progress for my child. Possibly. But let me touch on two things that you had said. One, you had said that, you know, your anxiety of that there was potentially a thought that the supervisor or, or supervising staff thought that you, you might not be a good parent or an unfit yes. parent. I think that is a very, very common, you know, uh, anxiety that's out there with a lot of our parents. And the best way to nullify that or to demystify that is by having that communication, talking about it, you know, showing that there's a reason to why this makes you uncomfortable, or at least gaining the information that you might need on why we're taking a particular path at a, you know, a new skill, or maybe why this intervention would be clinically recommended over another one, right? Those types of things. Because the more we're able to communicate in, in and, you know, express both, you know, what we're thinking and what our expectations are, then we're, we're forming more of that team, the team that we need to make the treatment the most successful for our children, right? That's the best way to do it. And that also, at the same time, lowers that that threshold uh, of anxiety of, am I a bad parent? They might think I'm a bad parent. Now it's more of a feeling of, okay we're on a team my my expectation my views are valid they're 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 accepting and we're able to go ahead and talk about things right there's no there's no one topic or anything that we're not able to talk about which i think that is is huge a huge barrier to overcome with most of our families yeah and then the second thing you had mentioned was that you know it's you know i'm just saying no and I do think there are a lot of families that once their anxiety goes up, they do just say no. And, and then they're not able to explain why. They're not able to explain why that's making them uncomfortable, why that's making them uh, feel anxious, and it just comes out no. And we want to make sure that we're opening dialogue for if something doesn't uh, you know, if you have a question or you need more clarification on something or something just doesn't feel right, that we ha we can communicate that. So it's not just a no. Now it's an informed decision on both parts. Yeah. I I have to say that the remedy for all of this, and I, I, I love, it's exactly what you're saying, that if there's something that is that they want to do an intervention and you don't feel comfortable, uh, and you can practice, I can remember doing this with my husband, practicing with him saying the words so that then when you say it in the room with all the anxiety, you don't feel as bad about it. But saying, hey, I, I got to be honest, I feel uncomfortable about this because what I'm worried about is, right? And that then the conversation can happen. Um, 
because I always kiddingly say I gave up mind reading to be an autism mom. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that these wonderful BCBAs that work with our kiddos, they never took a class in mind reading. There's, they took classes in perspective taking, and they're desperately trying to take the parents' perspective about what's happening, but we should help them out. We shouldn't make them guess. We should tell them, here's what I'm worried about. And case in point, I just want to pick from our from our my story is that there were lots of times that we've talked before on the show about food as a primary reinforcer. It's like the easiest thing in the world to get a kid to you know be able to want to work on something to have their favorite food. And I just carte blanche said no, there will be no food. Um, we're not doing that at my house. Right. And, you know, the first supervisor that I had was like, oh, okay, because I was so definitive about it. No food at our house, right? The second supervisor came in and said, but why? Why, right. Shannon? Why are you concerned about that? And I, and I was, I felt comfortable enough to say to her, I come from a family of people who have food issues, and I don't want him to have a food issue. I don't want everything in his life that is, you know, uh, pleasurable to be tied to a food memory. I don't want that to be how we do this because I think that the gene is large in our family for us to be large and to take our reinforcement <laughs> from food. And you know what? She was able to deal with me then because she was like, oh, that's so not what I thought you were going to say. And then we move forward where we save food for very extreme circumstances and used it very lightly. It did get used. Let's be clear about that. But it didn't get used for everything. Right. Um, because she was the most powerful. Because she took into consideration what I was saying. She heard what my fear was. And she said, and when we use food, here's how we will use it. And here's how we will use it sparingly. So we won't get to the outcome. And then I was okay with that. But it was a conversation, and, and I right. think everybody, and sometimes you feel squeamish about it because sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's a, like, did I really want to say to her, well, look, you know, I, I come from a family of fatties, and we don't know when to stop. No, I didn't really want to have that conversation with her. But, you know, I, it was the truth um, that I didn't want to set up a circumstance for him where all good things were tied to food. Uh, and right, she heard it. Right. She heard it. And we move forward accordingly. So, right. and, it's, and, and you phrased it perfectly. It's a conversation. And that's all we're having. Two adults having a conversation based on a need, an anxiety, a clinical recommendation, a parental expectation, or what have you. Right? We're just having conversations. No one's telling anybody what to do, and no one's expected to do anything, you know, just blindly and without without care or concern. Having these conversations at your clinic meetings, at your you know caregiver support meetings, is essential because these are the linchpins that really put an effective treatment plan together. Because not only everyone's working on the uh, agreed uh, upon goals and the behavior plans are all being utilized inside and outside of treatment, but it's also training and helping and guiding the family on how to generalize these skills at home, how to generalize the language, how to generalize the behavior plans. And when that happens, then not only learning skills are quicker for the kid, but they're also generalizing a lot faster for the entire family. But you brought up a word a little while ago, anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I know firsthand that anxiety 
is a large part of what had me sometimes being the difficult parent who was impeding progress. So let's take a second to talk about anxiety and how it manifests itself in a parent sitting and talking with a supervisor and how that can lead to the impeding progress. Um, I, you know, we just had Leah Hirschfeld on talking about the, the VR program, the study that they just published on five days ago uh, about using VR to teach safety skills. And I, you know, mm -hmm. what I wanted more than anything else, we, we talk about values, right? What I wanted more than anything else was for my son to be safe. 100%. But sometimes when they would want to run the program where they would go down to the actual street to work on crossing the street safe, safely, I would tell them, no, we can't do that today because I was having anxiety about it. Right. I Like, I didn't want to work on it because what if he didn't... I didn't even want to work on it, Vince, because in my head I would be like, as long as he hasn't worked on it, then crossing the street is out of the question. Once we right. start to work on it, if he on paper says he's 100%, then at some point they're going to want him to cross the street, and I'm not going to be ready to do that. Right. that. That was the process in my head. So I was telling them, and I wasn't saying, I'm just not going to let you work on I wasn't telling them any of this. I was just like, ah, today's not a good day. It looks like rain. We're not going to go down to the street to work on it. <laughs> right? And that right. was impeding my child's progress. we got to be 100% clear about that, that there's times right. when as a parent, well-intentioned, well-intentioned, but out of anxiety, we will have them not work on something or stop halfway or stop when the child gets upset, right? Right, right. And, and, and again, our anxieties manifest itself in many different ways, right? Sometimes they come out in fear. Sometimes they come out in anger. Yeah. Sometimes they don't come out at all, and we just get paralyzed and frozen and don't say a word, right? So anytime that you feel or you know that you're withholding or maybe you reacted to something in a, in a way where you wouldn't typically react to it, your anxiety levels are up, right? And it's at that point where we need to have those conversations with either your supervisor or your therapy staff and talking to them about whatever it is that we're anxious about. So obviously, let, let's use safety situations, crossing the street, right? Having that conversation, I'm afraid that when we go down, it becomes real. Now he's in real danger. That is a concern to me. And then we can talk about what we're going to do, how it's going to look, how you can be a part of it, how we're, you know, going to anticipate and obviously look for cars, you know, all the different things that you need to hear. You need to hear them so that your anxiety is checking off boxes. Okay, they're looking at that, they're looking at that, they're caring for that, they're aware of this, right? And they're not, you know, you feel more comfortable that they're not just frivolously going out and, and without care or reason crossing the street. But even though logically we might know they're going to do that, these are highly trained professionals, but our subconscious needs to hear these things, needs to know that there's a direct understanding with one another for our anxiety levels to drop. So one of the keys that I see is anytime I know that I'm avoiding something, that for me is a time that I need to have a conversation with, either it be the professional or, or a spouse or a family member or what have you. And every, like I said, because everybody's anxiety manifests differently, we have to be in tune with our own behaviors, with our own symptoms. And once that happens and we're aware of it, we're now able to identify and have a conversation about it. And boy, if we could, it's 
if we could get everybody to really live and inhabit that, it would be great. But sometimes the anxiety prevents people from uh, even even getting to that point, right? right? Like I, I sort of think of it as a thing that we do work on it every day, do our level best, um, and 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 at the end of the day, maybe take stock and go, okay, so today maybe I didn't do the, my best job, but here's what I'm going to do to work on that. I, you know, I had to be put on a behavior contract as a parent um, because there were times when I wanted to interrupt and they they logically explained to me why I couldn't interrupt and and what I could, they gave me a replacement behavior instead of what I could do if I wanted to interrupt, but I couldn't. Um, and so I just want to say to parents who are watching, this is hard stuff. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and I, I want you to know that I, firsthand know it and Vince has dealt with this for you know, more years than I'm sure that you would like to recount, <laughs> right? And right. it would just, it would be so much easier if we could just all have a little switch that we could click in our head and go, oh, no, we're turning it to ABA parent mode and I'm not going to freak out over this, that, and the other thing. Man, that would be so much easier. But I, but I made but little signs around that. It's to have that relationship yeah. with your supervisor, right? Yeah. You are much more comfortable talking to someone you trust, someone you think that has your best, best interest at heart. Um, and that's why it's essential to establish that relationship early on before our anxiety levels go all up and down, right? When we're just meeting someone and we're talking with someone and when the times are good and we agree with things, right? It's still a very good opportunity to build that relationship because when that anxiety comes, because as we all know, it will, then we feel at least a little bit more comfortable talking to them so we're not letting the anxiety lead the anxiety, yeah. so to speak. And I think it's really beneficial to have other professionals in our life to talk to about these things, like a licensed marriage family therapist, a place to take that to, somebody who's reasonable and gets it, like Vince, where, you know, um, I, didn't, I didn't have the benefit of having Vince when we were in therapy, but I, I would have loved to have sat and said, and when they want me to do this, it feels like I'm a failure if I don't do X, Y, and Z and have... A rational person say yes it feels that way but that's not really what's happening right right you know that's true. so I think that's having true. some if you can avail yourself of services like Vince's what a great thing to do what I did in the absence of that was made little uh, index cards that I put in places that only I could see um, that would remind me of things like one of them I had one on my computer screen uh, just above it that said, Jem will never be this age again, so that I would remind myself whatever I was working on the computer wasn't as important as him, right? Because I could get lost in my computer. But there was sure. another one that said, I will not be the thing that stops his progress. And that was super important for me on a daily basis because I would look at that and then then I'd be someplace and I'd be like, no, I don't think we should work on that. And then I'd be like, ooh, I think that's me stopping his progress. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, and then another one that, that I think it's still up in my house someplace, uh, which said, um, Jem's team is only as strong as its weakest player, and I will not be its weakest player. Right. That would Right? Right. Um, and, that, and that's the thing. And you phrased it perfectly. We're all one team, right? It'd be the new therapist, the more experienced therapist, the supervisor, the assistant supervisor, the parents, the grandmas and grandpas. We're all one family with the same goal, which is to improve 
you know, uh, 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 the child's skills, the child's behavior, so that they're uh, uh, an active and, and functional, you know, part of the family, and they're enjoying things, and they're learning things, and they're experiencing things that they never would have experienced before. And every part is just as valuable as the next. No one is more important than the next. Absolutely. And then I want to shift just a little bit, because sure. I said before about how, we, you know, uh, the, the, the BCBAs are taught perspective taking to some degree, but not mind reading. And then I want to I want to shift to the other side of it, where where we talk a little bit about how parents need to take the perspective of the person who's the BCBA, because I see that a lot of times we don't have the time or the energy to do this, but I think it's important to bring it up that, you know, I, I think there's a misunderstanding sometimes about what the BCBA role is and who that person is and why they might be in that role. Because um, I, I see parents from time to time, and I'm sure you see this too, Vince, where they've, they've come and they say, well, we want to do therapy because we want to do what's best for our child. And then the, this expert, the BCBA says, well, I'd like to do this. And then the parent goes, no, I don't No, That's not the thing that we want to do. And, <laughs> and it's like, Part of me wants to say, you're here with the expert, and this is what the expert said. You worked really hard to get here. Um, right. We should at least give them an opportunity to show us what they can do. And, and, and we have to think about what their motive is for suggesting this. Because uh, BCBAs, you know, we just heard from Leah, there's not enough of them in the world. And that right. BCBAs can go work for a car company and make the same money. But these people came because they want to help kids with autism. Their right. recommendations are unique and specific to the kiddo. They're not, they're not random, they're well thought of, and we need to listen to them, right, Vince? Right, well, and, you know, and the recommendations are built around scientific evidence and proof yeah. as well. I think that goes along with the anxiety talk that we were talking earlier, that oftentimes we're meeting a new professional that you know might have a different viewpoint than what we have um you know based on not only treatment but success levels of recommend uh, recommended treatments um you know maybe the locations of treatment you know different modalities of treatments all those types of things and when somebody else's um point of view of treatment doesn't match ours, we have that anxiety again, right? Yeah. And our, our immediate response to anxiety is to try to avoid it and to reduce it. And so we say no, yeah. right? We, you know, as humans, we're very habitual and very, you know, re repetitious uh, beings. And any time that our homeostasis or our, our, our sameness is you know, someone else comes in with a different point of view, our immediate anxiety is to resist that. Yeah, change uh, is hard. I, yeah, and I like your point, though. You're meeting with a professional who, whose expectations is to help your child the best they, way they know how, and they're specifically trained and scientifically, you know, educated on how to do that. And along with that is teach you how to do it too so that you then also have the same expectation and the same knowledge and the same skills so that what the child's receiving in therapy they're receiving outside of therapy as well yeah i i just want for parents to think about the fact that if if i'm a person who went to school for many years because i want to help kids with autism and i'm i'm here with a parent and i see this kiddo and i i've got my plan that, as you said is based on scientific evidence 
and I go, okay, so here's what I would like to do. And it's perfectly acceptable. We've already covered it for, for the parent to say, I'm uncomfortable with this because, right? But a lot of times we don't say that, we just say no. And for right. this person who's here to do something good to get the no, it's like, okay, now I gotta, I gotta somehow get over the objection for this no and get to a place where we can. So now instead of doing the intervention, I now have to spend time explaining to this person, which is all part of my job. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but that takes time away from the intervention. Let's be realistic here. So, okay, we get to we get to an agreement. Okay, we've worked it out. Fine, we built rapport. It's not wasted time, but you know, then it comes up again. No. <sighs> okay. Now let remember we talked about this that it's this and it's that and it's whatever. Again, we've taken time away from the therapy, and I just want for the parents to think about if every time it's a no, right. how if every time that the that this professional is here to help your child they have to stop and talk you through whatever it is it it adds up it adds yeah. up to, yes. to, to not being progress it does and in in what you're mentioning is again the essential reason why trust is needed and it needs to be established in the beginning is yeah. if you don't if you're not trusting the individuals and this could be because of past histories with previous agencies or previous professionals or what have you, but that your perfect example of why if we can't have trust in the providers and build that relationship, there's going to be roadblocks with every yeah. single major change that happens in the program. And every time that's going to take time away from the direct treatment, that's going to take time away from, you know, some of the success and it's going to, you know, definitely slow down progress for the child to reach their goals. So if there's questions or if there's a concern, bring that up early on. Don't wait on it, don't sit on it, don't let it fester, don't let it grow, because that's where we start getting into those barriers of success. But once we can establish the trust, we can ex ex establish the relationship with one another, then we can have, it's just conversation, like we were talking about, it's just conversations about questions, yeah. and they're no longer barriers. We're able to explain things, talk about things, work things, make adaptations, um, you know, along the way, which of course is going to happen, in the, and those oftentimes are the best things ever. But if we're putting up barriers, then what we're doing is, you know, keep restarting, emerging, restarting, emerging, restarting. And, and by doing that, that progression that your child is, is, is work, you know, is, is working towards is going to continue to be hindered, but also it's breaking down the relationship that you have with your professionals because that constant requesting, that constant, uh, uh, not trusting that constant no is going to, you know, continue to tear down that relationship because everything that the the treatment team is doing is is being i guess deemed as inappropriate or might be deemed as not going to be successful for your child so we're working against each other at that point and that could be and that can be very damaging to the overall progress of the treatment plan yeah and and we're almost out of time here vance because i know you got to get to a meeting and i eventually have to get to it too but um not to put too fine of a point on it you know for parents, let me be 100% clear, you always have the right to say no, always. Right. That, that is absolutely your right. 
But my point to you is you didn't bring your child to the playground, right? You brought your child to an ABA professional. So you still have the right to say no, but if you keep saying no and keep saying no and keep saying no, then at a certain point, it's like me going to the doctor and saying, I don't want to take your medicine. And then eventually the doctor says, I think you should see someone else then because I really can't help you. If you don't, if you don't want to do it the way that I, you know, have decided to do it, then I suggest that you go see someone else. And that is what happens. And, and parents are always dismayed when that happens, Vince. And I, and I'm always very sad for them when that moment comes, when, when any ABA provider says, I, you know, this isn't really working out because you've, you know, you've exercised your right to say no. But at a certain point, then we don't have a room to do what we need to do. Right, right. And then it's our ethical, you know, responsibility to help the family find services. It might be ABA, it might not, it might be other types of services that are best meeting their expectations. Because as we had mentioned in the very beginning, right, ABA is very intensive. It's very demanding. It's very difficult for families and staff and the child, right? It's, it's a very taxing treatment, no doubt about it. And, it, and there's going to be bumps in the roads, like Shannon said, we're going to say no's here and there, we're going to have disagreements here and there, and that's part of the process that's absolutely okay. But sometimes this intensity or this type of, of treatment isn't, isn't what the family is looking for or isn't going to fit their expectations and ideologies. And so then we go ahead and help them find other resources, which is what are out there in their community. And we're more than happy to do that as well. Yes. Yes. Um, but hopefully then that sits better with the individual, but it always feels bad. I think for parents when, um, when the relationship is stopped, um, I, I, I do feel that for parents understanding what that line is, is really, really difficult. Um, you, you need to be an active member of the team. You need to voice things and have conversations and say when you have concerns about something, but you can't constantly say no, um, unless, you know, what you really want is to do something else, which is, that's fine too. Anyway, I beat that dead horse. Vince, you're amazing. (laughs) We have so enjoyed having you with us in 2019. This is our last show of the day or last show of the, the year, excuse me. Um, but you are coming back with us on two th- in 2020, correct? Absolutely. All right. We, a happy holidays to you and to your you wonderful family, and we will see you back in 2020. Sounds good. All right, happy take care. Happy holidays to everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to take a short back break. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Autism Live. We are in the last few minutes of our last show of this year, 2019. And I just have to take a minute to say, uh, we're still gonna be doing programming all next week, the next two weeks. It's just not going to be new programming. So you can still write in and you can still ask questions. We archive everything. You just won't see an immediate response back. Um, It will be all pre-recorded shows. And, but we will be back in 2020 with some pretty amazing stuff, and we're very excited about um, some new things that we're going to be doing here on the show. I just want to say to all of you, 
whatever holiday you celebrate during this time of year, or even if you're not celebrating a, a, a holiday, if this is not the end of the year for you, um, I, I just want to say, no matter any of that, what a privilege it is to get to be here with you. And I hope you know how much it means to me to have the ability to hear from you and to be in a classroom where sometimes you guys are the teachers and um, that that's very, very exciting for me. And to have the access to the level of guests that we have here and enjoy here on the show on a regular basis. You're gonna see that in the, finally this spring, we're scheduled to get a credits roll that will roll at the end of this so that you will hear and see all of the people that are involved with Autism Live and the roles that they play. But I would be remiss if I did not mention, first of all, Trayvon Hardy, who is on the board right now and is our live content producer. And he is an amazing gentleman um, and has added so much to our show. We're so grateful for him. Cindy Dillon, who has uh, come on to our team and really made the toy thing happen and books our guests and is absolutely amazing. We also want to give a big shout out to Dr. Doreen Grampichet, who is our executive producer and has made it possible for and given us carte blanche for us to cover the topics that we want to cover here on the show. Her ongoing support has been nothing short of heroic and we uh, so very greatly appreciate her support and her ongoing support as we try to um, bring the things that we bring to you guys. But the last and I think, you know, the most important element of this show is you. That you guys as the viewers have shown up. We, we have spent to date, uh, it's less than $500 we've spent on active publicity. So that's pretty amazing that millions of you are showing up here. We hope you'll continue to do that and to share because otherwise people don't find us. Let them know. I, I, I'm both, I love and am dismayed when I say to people, oh yes, the show Autism Live, and they're like, how have I never heard of that? Um, and I'm like, I just don't know. Uh, because you, you didn't hear about it till today, but we hope that together with you, we will find even more people who want and need this resource and that we will continue to listen to you, the viewer, about what it is that you want to hear and see on our programming. I hope that you all have lovely, wonderful holidays and I will see you in the new year where we will be fresh and bright and shiny, bushy-tailed, bright-eyed, and bring you more uh, inspiration and information because that really is what we are about here at Autism Live. Uh, my blessings to all of you. Happy New Year. Uh, happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa. And uh, I don't, I, what do we say? Uh, happy Ramadan. I don't know. Uh, but write in and tell me all of the things that we should be celebrating. I will see you back in the new year. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now.